Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, why don't you flip over to Luke chapter 9, or fire up your device, whatever you're using, and we'll be in Luke this morning. I wonder when, uh, when was it that you signed up to first follow Christ? Was it five years ago, two years ago, 20 years ago? Some of you 40, 60, 70 years ago. This week and next, we're going to be taking some time to remember exactly what it was that we signed up for when we made that decision to follow Christ. The fact is that our initial dedication can wane, and the clarity that we had when we first raised our hand and said, I'm I'm yours, Lord, can fade. So maybe you're here this morning and you're at a spot where some of that clarity, some of that dedication may be at an ebb. This week and next, we're going to look at what did we sign up for when we decided to follow Christ. And maybe you're here this morning in the Great Hall or joining us at home and you haven't made that decision to follow Christ and you're thinking, okay, this maybe isn't for me. Use this week and next as an opportunity to consider what does it actually mean to be a disciple of Christ, to commit your life to following him. This week we're going to remember that when we decided to follow Christ, we signed up to be all in. And there are some things in life where you just really need to be all in for them. Following Christ is one of them. Another thing, and I can speak from some personal experience here, is jumping off of high dives at summer camp. If you're going to do that, and if you're going to try to dive, trust me, you need to be all in. When I was growing up, I loved to go to camp. For me, growing up in Wisconsin, it was Lake Lundgren Bible Camp. And when I was at camp, especially a little bit older in high school, I loved to be in the water and jumping off of their raft and their high dive. That raft, that high dive, as a matter of fact. That's not me, but that is the raft, the high dive that I remember well from my youth of jumping off and how big a splash can you make and you got to do that and all this stuff and and one summer I decided you know what I'm not going for a big splash this summer I'm gonna dive I'm gonna go for a little splash and that was you know that's a whole different deal so got to talk to some people got some tips practiced off the side practiced in shot you know shorter shorter goes of it and all the rest and got up there okay here I go I gotta be all in so arms straight up Poosh. Now, I'm not saying I would have won any competitions, but my hands hit the water first, then my head, then the rest of me. I was ecstatic. It worked. So, of course, you're ecstatic about something like that. What do you do? Up the ladder, let's go again. I don't know what happened the second time. I hesitated. I I, I questioned. I kind of crouched, I think. I don't know what happened, but instead of one of these... I did this. Belly flop. As flat as flat can be, I literally came up with a bloody nose. I learned that diving off of that thing, you got to be all in. You can't hesitate. This morning, we're going to remember that when we decide to follow Christ, we got to be all in. There's no other way. 
So let's read together from Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, but first, Lord, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Kirk has already prayed for our time in the Word this morning, so let's go ahead and jump right in. As we begin our study of this passage, it's good, as always, to see what's going on before and after that after this passage that we're looking at. And when we do that, we get a sense that these are three really kind of anecdotes dropped into the middle of a larger narrative that Luke is telling. And this narrative is really at a pivot point right here at the end of chapter 9. Part of this pivot is geographical. If you look up to verse 51 in chapter 9, you'll see that this is where Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. Up until verse 51, Luke's gospel had all been occurring in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. And then in verse 51, he turns, he pivots, and geographically, he changes direction and heads south to Jerusalem. And then at the beginning of chapter 10, you'll see that what happens there is Jesus begins what we would call, for lack of a better term, a missionary movement. He gets 72 of his followers and he sends them out on what we would call mission trips. He says, you guys go, proclaim the kingdom, and do the work of the kingdom. So this passage, right between these two things... The change in geographical direction and the beginning of this missionary movement, right between these two things, Luke is taking the opportunity to make sure that everyone is on the same page about what Jesus came to do and about what it means to follow him. And this quick account, these three encounters, these three interactions, is a reminder that when we decide to follow Christ, we sign up to be all So let's look at each of these three encounters. The first encounter that we come across is Jesus and an eager would-be disciple. And this guy really is. He is eager. He's excited. He's, He's ready to go. It's almost humorous, the picture that is painted here in verses 57 and 58, as we think about Jesus and his disciples walking down the road, and maybe this guy runs up from behind and says, Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Or maybe he's, this guy is you know, out in front and kind of charting a collision course with Jesus and his disciples, saying, Jesus, wherever you go, I will follow you. I'm in. He is eager. 
But we've got to ask, I think, was his enthusiasm realistic? Did this guy really know what he was signing up for when he told Jesus that he would follow him wherever? On the one hand, we have no reason to doubt his sincerity. Um, You know, he had probably been aware of what Jesus was doing. Maybe he had overheard some of Jesus' teaching. Maybe he was sitting front row for some of Jesus' miracles. He, He would have had a sense of what Jesus was doing and what he came to do. So we have no reason to doubt his sincerity. But on the other hand, when we fast forward to where Jesus will ultimately go, when we think about the fact that Jesus' final destination is, in fact, the cross, we have to remember that no one, except some of the women that were following Jesus, And his disciple John, no one else really followed Jesus wherever he went. Everyone else bailed. Everyone else deserted. So at a minimum, this is a reminder to us this morning that our sincere and well-intentioned desire to follow Christ is always at least a little bit ignorant. It's just simply unknowing of what things Christ might call us to in the months or years to come. When any of us decides to follow Christ, we don't know fully what it will mean. But we can know and we can remember that it means being all in. And that's exactly what Jesus lays out for this eager, would-be disciple Rather than throwing another log on the fire of this disciple's enthusiasm, Jesus puts a speed bump in the road, and he says something to make the man stop and think. Jesus says, foxes have dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is saying to this man, do you really know what you're getting into here? Jesus compares himself to two wild animals in terms of accommodations. He starts with foxes. Foxes make dens. They dig holes in the ground or under trees or under rocks. They carve out places to store some extra food, to have their young, to call such as it is a home. And birds, birds have nests. Again, just a small place that is, that is known, that is kind of set up for them. They can put some feathers and things in there and have some place to go back to. Foxes, dens, and birds' nests offer some comfort, offer some convenience. Neither one is luxurious, though. I mean, a den is literally a hole in the ground and You think about a bird's nest, even when it rains, the bird is out there getting wet. Sure, it is some place to come back to, but it's not much. Jesus says, foxes, birds, they've got more of a home than he does. To follow him wherever he goes is to embrace that. Jesus forces this man, Jesus forces us to ask the question, am I really willing to follow 
a homeless Christ. The challenge that Jesus gives us in that is an act of love. He provides clarity both to this man and to us. And as we dedicate our lives to following Christ, we've got to remember that we sign up to be all in. And signing up to be all in means that we leave behind whatever comfort, whatever security we might have from a claim to a home here on this earth. You know, I find even for myself this question comes into much greater focus when I consider those who have gone before and have demonstrated so well with their own lives that they are willing to follow a homeless Christ. Perhaps you know the story of William Borden. He was born in 1887 to a wealthy family in Chicago. And he could have taken on and been a part of the family business. He could have worked in that and gained more wealth and enjoyed the prestige that came from being a successful businessman of the day. Or he simply could have put his feet back up and he availed himself of the fortune that was already available to him. But he did neither of these things. Instead, William Borden, uh, as a college student, dedicated his life, his efforts, to starting rescue missions and to leading student volunteer movements and student missionary movements. Wherever he went, he was looking to proclaim the gospel. And part of that gospel proclamation, he recognized that the people around the world had no chance to hear of Christ. And he dedicated himself to going to China to tell uh, Chinese Muslims about Jesus. So in pursuit of that, he sailed to Egypt to learn Arabic and to begin to make some connections. And a short three months after he landed in Egypt, at the age of 25, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died. It's been said, though not confirmed, not corroborated, that on the flyleaf of his Bible he had written, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And regardless of whether or not those words were written in his Bible, that refrain was a summary of his life. He lived out the determination to be all in in following Christ. When I think about a life like his, it challenges me. Would I be willing? To be sure, God does not call most of us to the life that he called William Borden to. But we have to remember we signed up to be all in. Foxes have dens. Birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The second encounter that we see here flips part of the script from the first. In, verse, uh, in the first encounter, it's somebody coming up to Jesus. And in verse 59, Jesus is the one initiating conversation. He says to a man, follow me. And then the ball is in this man's court. And he replies in a way that might seem reasonable, but betrays that he's not really ready to devote all to following Christ. Instead, he replies with reservation, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. He tries to put a condition 
on following Christ. Some commentators would say at this point that what's happening is the man's father might not actually be dead yet. This isn't a delay of a couple of days, these commentators would say, simply to go to a funeral. What they wonder about is perhaps this man's father is still alive, and what this man is asking for is leave of an indefinite period of time, but likely years to wait until his father dies and then bury his father and take care of the estate and the other responsibilities that would be put on him. If you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard this explanation of this passage. But let's hit pause on that for a second and ask ourselves, is that a valid explanation? Does that fit what's going on between Jesus and this man? Luke recorded these three exchanges to give us a picture of what it means to follow Christ. So is Luke telling us that part of what it means to follow Christ is that a delay of years is unacceptable, but a delay of a couple of days, a couple of weeks, yeah, that would be okay. Is Luke saying that there are some conditions on following Jesus that would be acceptable and others that would not? I think the plain answer to that when we read these passages is no. That's not what Luke is saying. There's not an acceptable level of delay. There are no reasonable conditions that somebody could make in a response to Christ's call on their life to follow him. Jesus' response confirms this. Jesus' reply to this guy is direct. It's blunt. And we should allow ourselves to feel the force of it. So let's imagine for a minute that you're talking to your boss about taking some time off to go to a funeral. A funeral for somebody close to you. Maybe a parent. And your boss says to you, let the dead bury their own dead. You stay at work. This is more important. Now, when we consider that scenario, we can recognize we don't care if the delay is a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a month. If that's the response we got from a boss, there would be a reaction, yeah? Let's not play games with Scripture. Let's not soften the force of Jesus' words by attaching to them some length of delay that would be deemed unacceptable as compared to another length of delay that maybe would be okay. The point of this exchange is that when Jesus calls, no delay is acceptable. No conditions are allowed. And this applies to those conditions that might even be related to good things, like our family. Make no mistake, the responsibility of a child to their parents is no small thing. It's not a small thing now, it was no small thing then. And not only is it, was it, culturally important, a responsibility of children to their parents is mandated by Scripture, right? The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. When we remember that, we recognize that Jesus' words to this man would have been very uncomfortable. Not only for him, but for everybody around listening. 
You can imagine the whispers. And did, did Jesus just say that? Did he really? T- did? This would have been uncomfortable. And this should make us uncomfortable too. And it does make us uncomfortable. Especially since in the church, oftentimes, family can be used as a near synonym for Christianity. We're not surprised if we're watching a family-friendly movie to see that family go to church, are we? We're not surprised if the family values candidate talks about his or her faith, are we? We sometimes use family as a stand-in word for faith. And if we're not careful, do we perhaps run the risk of slipping into thinking that if something is for our family, then it's automatically consistent with following Christ? So Jesus telling someone to seemingly ignore or set aside a family responsibility to proclaim the kingdom is, is jarring. How do we understand that? How do we rightly apply it to our lives? Let's start with recognizing other passages of Scripture that speak to how we must relate to our family. We already mentioned the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. We might also remember 1 Timothy 5.8 that says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Considering these, we can recognize that Jesus is not demanding wholesale rejection of family connections and responsibilities. You might know some situations where that's happened, where people have, on the whole, rejected their family responsibilities, oftentimes, sadly, especially men, to do God's work. And those men have caused great harm in the ways that they have abandoned their family responsibility for something else. Jesus is not telling us to set aside other scripture in how we are to relate to family. He is, however, making it clear that nothing, not even good things, can be allowed to stand in the way of our all-in commitment to him. He's putting a focus on the question of, are there things in my life, things that are good in and of themselves, that I have allowed to become conditions on Christ's call to follow him. And if there are, if I have put other things, even good things, in front of following Christ, am I willing to let the dead bury their own dead and go and proclaim the kingdom? And that brings us to our third encounter. A disciple's desire to follow with some reservations. And these reservations, again, might seem reasonable. They might seem even minor. 
Verse 61, somebody calls up and says, I'll follow you, Lord, but first, just let me go say goodbye to my parents. Maybe he had heard the previous exchange, and he was thinking, okay, I'm not going to ask, I was going to ask about the funeral, not going to ask about the funeral. I'm just going to, I'll just go say goodbye to my parents. That'll be okay, right? Yeah, this, this should work. I'll ask Jesus about that. I'm sure he won't have a problem with that. Maybe he didn't hear the last guy get rebuked for asking permission to attend a funeral, and he's walking into it blind, and he doesn't know what's about to hit him. Either way, by the time we get to this third encounter, having read the other two, we don't have to wonder too much about what Jesus' response is going to be to this would-be disciple. And we can see the hesitancy baked right into this would-be disciple's address. Unlike the first guy who wanted to be all in but didn't really have a clue what it meant, this guy starts off with a really interesting, uh, really interesting turn of phrase. I will follow you, Lord. And the next word after calling Jesus Lord is but. One commentator on this passage points out that one cannot call Jesus Lord, as this disciple aspirant does, and then impose limits on his lordship. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord over everything. And there's no place for any buts in our commitment to him. Maybe this would-be disciple was thinking that it would be okay because uh, of an Old Testament passage that talks about something quite similar. This week, if you'd like, you can check out 1 Kings 19. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, one of God's prophets, is calling Elisha to come and basically be an apprentice, an apprentice to him. And as Elijah calls Elisha, Elisha turns around and says goodbye to his family and then comes and follows, and that's acceptable. So maybe this guy's thinking, all right, if it's good enough for Elijah and Elisha, it should be good enough for me and Jesus, right? This should work. This guy doesn't get Jesus' approval, though. Jesus tells him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The first encounter addresses those who might not know what they're getting into. The second encounter deals with those who would try to put conditions on following Christ and carve out how they will follow Christ and how they won't. This encounter speaks to a willful hesitancy to follow Christ. Hesitancy and discipleship are incompatible. They don't mix. To understand that, let's look a little bit more closely at what Jesus says. Whenever there's a metaphor going on like this, it's helpful to just stop and think through the parts of it. Uh, think through what exactly Jesus is referring to in the metaphors that he's using. And Jesus is likening this work for the kingdom to the agricultural work of plowing. The plow that people would have used then wasn't a plow that was dragged behind a tractor. It was a plow that was pulled by animals and in front of the operator. Basically would have been a stick that went down into the ground at an angle, probably with a metal cap on it, a metal point on it, to just dig up the ground a little bit as it was pulled by some animals and guided 
by the plowman. It was very hands-on type of work. <clears throat> and if you think about it, it was the kind of work, it's a little bit like painting, right? Where a lot of the work is in the preparation. By the time somebody puts hand to plow and is ready to start literally digging in and going down the row, they've gotten the plow out and they've got it set up. They've gotten the animals out of the field and gotten them positioned. They've gotten the yoke or the harness out and they've gotten it on the animal. They've connected the plow to the harness. They've done a lot of work already. So putting hand to the plow is just the final step of something that has already been decided to be done. What Jesus is saying is anybody who has done all of that work and knows that they're going to be a disciple, puts hand to plow and hesitates and looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom. Hesitation. Wondering, do I really want to do this? Is it worth it? is incompatible with discipleship. Are you hesitating on some aspect of following Christ? These passages remind us that when we signed up to follow Christ, we signed up to be all in. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I want to shift gears for a second here. This message, by and large, has been reminders to those who have decided to follow Christ that we signed up to be all in. But maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what? I'm not following Christ. My plow's still in the barn. I'm not sure if I want to get in on this. And especially thinking about all that's required, this level of commitment, I, I don't know. That's fair. The commitment required to follow Christ is high. And I would just ask you to consider, what are you all in on? What things in your life do you sacrifice for? What does take priority for you? Because if it isn't Jesus, I'll tell you this, it's something. So what is it? Is it your career, looking for that promotion, looking to get the next rung up, a little bit more prestige, a little bit more authority, a little bit more prominence, a little bit more recognition? Is it money? A little bit more, just buy this next thing, cross that off the list, feel a little bit more comfortable with my nest egg. Speaking of comfort, maybe it's comfort. I just want to put my feet up and relax. Maybe it's a certain cause, a certain project that you get excited about and you fight for. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's just that next pleasure that you're chasing. What do you order your life around? Not sure? When we want to figure out what we're ordering our life around, we can ask two questions that can be really helpful. What do I spend my money on? What do I spend my time on? 
when I get a little bit of extra of either one of those two things, where does it go? And when we recognize that answer, we will figure out what we're all in on. Once you've figured out what it is that you're all in on, ask yourself, does it really satisfy? Has it ever really met the longings that you want it to meet? Is it worth it? Now, having considered that, let's think about what Jesus offers. We see it clearly in both the second and the third encounter. The kingdom of God. To be a part of the kingdom of God is to align yourself with its values and its agenda. And also to partake in its benefits. So what are some of the benefits of being in the kingdom of God? Let's consider what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He invites us to learn from him and find rest for our souls. That's a benefit of the kingdom. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Being able to come to someone and have them know you fully and have no fear of rejection, that's a benefit of the kingdom. To those who come to him, Jesus offers forgiveness of sins, cleansing of guilt, and removal of shame. That's a benefit of the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, the Spirit of God brings love, joy, peace. Don't those things sound good? And those in the kingdom have God's promise that When Jesus comes again to make all things new and to establish his kingdom forever here on this earth, they too will be able to be a part of it. That's a benefit of the kingdom. There is great joy on being all in in something that is good and pure, and right, and true. So we're going to invite the worship team up, and in a minute we're going to sing, but before we do, I ask you, just let's pray. And take some time in your own heart, in your own head, and talk to God and ask Him, God, what am I holding in reserve? God, by your Spirit, would you show what reservations I have? What conditions I try to place on following you?
God, would you uh, reveal to me where I resist being all in? Take some time. Ask God to speak to you. And listen. there are things that God's revealing to you, I invite you to maybe even write them down. Name it. And then remember this morning that having signed up to follow Christ, we signed up to be all in. And recommit to following Christ no conditions, with no reservations, with no hesitations. God, help us to do that. We need you. Amen.